Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. See if you can notice the next thought that arises as it arises. Where are thoughts coming from? And where do they go? Most of us spend most of our lives feeling like we are the thinker of our thoughts. Where is this thinker? Isn't there only the next thought that arises? Think of the Eiffel Tower. Now think of a red bus. Now remember the name of the first president of the United States. How could any of these appearances be what you are? You are simply noticing them. They arise in an instant. They pass away in the next. How is it that you ever feel identical to this voice that seems to be in your head? Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. At the beginning of the pandemic, we started using Sam Harris's Waking Up Meditation app each morning. And it has been nothing short of transformative for us. Personally, I feel more centered, less at the mercy of negative emotions and thought patterns that flit through my consciousness, and more able to acknowledge and dismiss them. I feel more aware of what my mind and myself is, more able to recognize that everything I experience regardless of where it originates in the external world, is a mental event. That my own mind is all I have, and that it is precious. We're so used to hearing Sam's voice each morning, it's like we've been having a one-way conversation for almost two years. So it was surreal to hear it in real time. Sam Harris is a philosopher, neuroscientist, author, prominent atheist, cultural critic, and host of the popular Making Sense podcast. But despite his notoriety for all the above, a huge part of Sam's life and mission is to promote mindfulness meditation, which he has decades of experience with and which has shaped all his other work. What does mindfulness have to do with psychedelics? We felt like a very important angle on this whole subject is the relationship with mindfulness. And personally, that has been very helpful for me on some of the recent mushroom journeys I've gone on. I feel like mm. it's really helped me surrender and navigate that experience and get the most out of it. So we just wanted to start by asking you about your own experiences with psychedelics and how they may have aided in any kind of personal development? Personally, my experience is similar to so many others in that I credit my first psychedelic experiences as being indispensable gateways to a landscape of mind that I just would never have known to take an interest in, right? I was just somebody who was fundamentally skeptical that any 
claim I had heard about extraordinary experiences was valid or could be valid, because these claims have always come in a religious context and have been used to justify one or another metaphysical set of dogmas, mm-hmm. I was allergic to them. And this is now I'm talking about when I was you know, 18 or so. And just seemed like a an obvious symptom of wishful thinking and a, a lack of scientific education normally. You know, we're talking about medieval beliefs, a medieval worldview that people are still, for some reason, arguing for, and they're using their imagined spiritual or mystical experiences as confirmation hmm. of a worldview that had long been discredited. So, you know, I was skeptical and for that reason, just unlikely to make the efforts in meditation or any other non-pharmacological discipline that would get me to anything novel enough that would force me to reconsider my worldview. So when I took, it was really MDMA that first left this impression on me, and, and, and you know, MDMA is not classically considered a psychedelic, but after MDMA, I took LSD and it was essential for me to have my normal patterns of attention and just my, my, my psychological conditioning bowled over for a period of 10 hours or so, so that I could see that something quite different was on the other side of it. And it's not that I think the psychedelic experience, you know, whether it's on psilocybin or LSD or, or anything else, is now still the perfect indication of what's possible, but it, it certainly indicates that something else is possible, right? That it's possible to have a very different experience of yourself in the world than you you have been having by tendency. I think I was such a, a hard-headed and difficult case that I, I would just be guessing, but I, you know, I think if someone had prevailed upon me at that point and said, listen, you really have to try mindfulness and <laughs> meditation, and he, here's why, and you know, here are the books, and here you come sit this retreat... I think I could well have bounced off that whole project because I, I just I don't think I had enough of a natural facility for it, and it was just against the grain of so much of what I was already committed to intellectually. Which is astonishing, considering what you've devoted your life to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like these were, at the very least, transformational experiences in the sense that they opened up an avenue of curiosity that you have pursued ever since. I'm somewhat cautious in recommending psychedelics to people, and, and I, you know, we can get into the reasons why. But at this point in my life, even though I recently did do mushrooms for the first time in, in about 25 years, psychedelics do seem non-essential. But there's just no question that there, there was a before and after aspect to my life that was just utterly decisive. And it's very hard to imagine that I would have taken anything like Hmm. my current life course had I not had those experiences. Yeah. I also was a bit of a hard-headed, anti-religious person in my youth. And if anyone had told me to go pray and meditate, I would have told them to take a hike. (laughs) Um, Hmm. Or, I mean, more importantly, you associated those two things with each other. Praying and meditating are, you know. Right, right. They both were defined as dogmas, dogmatic practices to me. 
this sort of transformational experience in my own life that set me on a new path was certainly the wrongful conviction experience and the imprisonment experience, mm-hmm. not just because I was exposed to realities about the world and the criminal justice system and what happens with poor people and people who are traumatized from a young age and don't get support through society. But I think the fundamental thing was the realization that the things that happened to me are not necessarily things that I control and that may even make sense. Things that happen to people aren't things that they necessarily deserve. And you have to divorce yourself emotionally and mentally from the idea identity that you have attached to what you do and what happens to you in life, Mm. which I think is a different sort of way into mindfulness. The bad way of doing it is totally disassociating and going numb, which (laughs) I've done. (laughs) And the positive Mm. way of doing it is through mindfulness. Yeah, I can imagine you had an enormous experience of appreciating the gulf between who you think yourself to be, know yourself to be, who you experience yourself to be, and a wider conception of who you are forming on the outside. And as social primates, this is a very big deal to have a vast difference of opinion there as to who you are, to be in any sense in exile from any important community. And it's just given that what we're talking about here is the nature of the self and what kind of freedom is possible to discover in the nature of your own mind, you you really were forced into a kind of crucible there. I mean, it had to be an amazing experience for better and worse. Yeah. And I wish that I had the waking up app in the midst of it because I kind of had to figure that out on my own (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. and had very, very imperfect tools. And I'm thrilled to hear that in some way, the Waking Up app has made its way into the prison environment mm-hmm. because I feel like, like just the mindfulness experience could be incredibly healing in those tortured environments. As you've said, Sam, everything is a mental event, right? Mm-hmm. All the suffering that the people in prison are experiencing is a mental event. So let's address that. I think you're right to hone in on the fact that this all comes down to this discussion is all centered around the self. And so maybe this is a good time to just kind of dig into that a little bit. You know, we know, say, Dan Dennett talks about the self as a center of narrative gravity or a useful illusion. How do you describe the self? What is the self in your conception? Well, Dan and I don't agree about much in this area, but I actually, I do like that phrase a lot. And I think we both agree that the the self is an illusion. He would extend that to consciousness very likely being an illusion, which for me makes absolutely no sense. But it's important to define what we mean by self here because it's not that every aspect of the self is illusory. It's not that everything we could mean by the word self is illusory. It's not that people are, are illusory. It's not that you can't talk about yourself as being different from other people without indulging in some kind of delusion. It is, in fact, true that every morning I wake up, I wake up with my memories rather than your memories. There's a locality to the contents of my consciousness that is describable in terms of me being me, me being a self, me being a specific person. That's all fine. The self that gets cut through when you really learn how to meditate and the self that can certainly drop away in certain psychedelic experiences is... The sense that there's a subject 
in the middle of experience, in addition to experience. It's not that you are identical to your experience. You feel like you're having an experience. You're appropriating it from someplace that's on the edge of experience, right? That there's a thinker in addition to thoughts. There's a seer in addition to the act of seeing and and the thing that is seen. And this subject-object sense of duality in our perception, that is illusory. That, That is something that you can inspect and have it disappear. And when it disappears, you recognize, okay, that is this new experience of there being no center. This is obviously more fundamental. This is more true, a point of view on the nature of consciousness. And you can notice that the reason why there's an asymmetry here between the sense of self and its absence is because this is just the answer to the skeptical question, you know, well, how do you know that's the ground truth? Maybe the, the self is real and this loss of self is the illusion. Well, it's, it's like anything else where the difference is between paying close attention to something and being distracted, right? So that once you learn how to see consciousness without there being this presumed center, you know, or subject at the periphery of it, Every time you pay attention, that's the way consciousness now seems, right? That becomes the default recognition. And you simply can't find yourself or even the feeling of self ever again. I mean, it it reasserts itself a thousand times a day, but when inspected, it vanishes. It is like a kind of visual illusion. There's a classic example in Indian literature. I think it also appears within Buddhist teaching as well, but the the classic example is to, to mistake a coiled rope for a snake. You know, you walk into the room, there's a coil of rope in the corner for some reason. I guess you're living in India or someplace where that would be <laughs> a common thing. And you, you think it's a snake, your snake detectors go off, you get this obvious amygdala adrenalized response. But then on, upon closer inspection, you see that it's just a rope and you feel all the relief appropriate to that. The experience here is that every time you look more closely, the snake resolves itself into a rope. Hmm. You never look more closely and have the rope turn back into a snake. But it does seem to turn back into a snake every time you get lost in thought, thoughts of past and future and self-preoccupation and all the rest. So there is a decisive asymmetry here, which is once you know how to look for this thing you presume to be yourself in the middle of experience, and you don't find it, and you don't find it in a way that is decisive, well then then you can never be confused again, Hmm. really. I mean, then it's just a matter, if you're confused, then you just look again and it's not there. And again, it's it's not there in a sense that is is clear. So that's a very specific type of self to lose. Again, it's not that my autobiographical memories are suddenly not my own anymore. I'm getting, you know, whoever, Ariana Grande's memories piped into my consciousness. (laughs) We know what you were listening to earlier. (laughs) I I do have two girls, so so it eventually gets in. But it's not that there's no difference between voluntary and involuntary action. I mean, there are things we can still distinguish in human experience that many people associate with this term self, but this kind of self is totally divorceable Mm -hmm. from those phenomena. I'm curious to know how that relates to the idea of 
or the experience of surrender. In a lot of the literature that you read about psychedelics, you hear the word surrender all the time. And my experience of surrender was very much in the traumatic, like, oh, I guess I'm just going to prison for something I didn't do, and there's nothing I can do Hmm. about it. So I'm just going to sing Let It Be over and over to myself until like that really just sort of sticks into my head. And surrender that sense of like, well, the outside world needs to recognize me for me to be me. Like there's a number of ways that I've had Hmm. to surrender to experience and to an extreme experience so that I could stay sane. But that seems like a trauma response as opposed to, say, a positive, even clarifying action. And how mindfulness and psychedelics reveal the contours of the self through surrender is something I'd be interested in talking to you about, especially as it relates Mm. to the experience or the feeling of surrendering oneself to the experience. Yeah, well, there are two levels to this. I mean, so there's this spurious sense of self that you can drop, and that is synonymous with surrender. I mean, in the sense that there's there's no resistance in, in that moment. Whatever you're experiencing, which you might be resisting, if it could be physical pain, it could be emotional pain. You could you could be experiencing a an emotion that seems intrinsically negative, and you want to get rid of it. And that wanting to get rid of it is resistance, or it could be a larger set of ideas that's provoking this feeling that you're now having to think about. In your case, thinking about all of the stuff that's being said about you in the press. It can be a very simple experience or a very complicated one, but as long as you're in the center of it, the possibility of resisting what's happening, or even the imperative to resist, uh, or seeming imperative, that is the opposite of surrender, hmm. and that's the place where you feel stuck. So losing the sense that there's a center there, that there's a subject, that there's a place from which you could be resisting, hmm. that is it's a very clean and all-purpose sort of surrender. So you're just the space in which all of this is happening, however pleasant or unpleasant it might be. That The more you drop back into that recognition that consciousness is just like space in that it's not really changed by its contents a loose analogy to physical space but it's just intuitively captures the feeling the consciousness that's aware of fear or anger is not really afraid or angry Mm -hmm. and it's not different from that which is aware of joy and the more you drop back into that the more you feel this intrinsic freedom from the contents of consciousness, whatever they happen to be. So that's the fundamental insight of successful mindfulness. But its relationship to psychedelics is not especially straightforward, or even to an experience that one might have on a drug like MDMA. So, and this is really the distinction between consciousness and its contents. The first kind of surrender, the first insight into selflessness, is really a matter of just recognizing what consciousness is like, whatever is appearing. Totally ordinary consciousness is already like this. It's already free of a sense of self. If you would only look closely enough, you could recognize that. So you don't need the pyrotechnics of psychedelics or anything to change, really, to recognize that. 
And again, that's why there's something misleading about going to psychedelics to learn these lessons, even though it might be indispensable for any one person to do that. The other thing that can happen here is you can get significant changes in the contents of consciousness that are also a kind of surrender. They can be many things, but they can remove the problem you thought you had a moment ago Hmm. because you just feel so differently about everything. So, you know, with MDMA, you can suddenly recognize that all of your neurotic self-concern was just a malignant fantasy. And what you actually feel is that you love people and you feel just utterly grateful to be alive and you want nothing more than for everyone to be happy. So a feeling of unconditional love and acceptance of self and other can sweep into your mind. And this is an experience of deep surrender or or non-resistance to anything when this state overcomes you. But it need not be non-dualistic. I mean, it certainly wasn't non-dualistic when I had this experience. I was still a self. Mm -hmm. I was still on the edge of my experience. There was still a a subject-object perception. Mm -hmm. But I felt so good about everything that there was no problem. And so it goes with other types of experiences you could have on real psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD. Mm -hmm. You experience vast changes in the contents of consciousness. And some can be so intense that yourself or even your, your personhood can be obliterated, right? In a way that they're not obliterated when you're just dropping the center in non-dual mindfulness. Like I can have this conversation with you and I can recognize that there's no center to awareness. I can't have this conversation with you on five grams of psilocybin, <laughs> five grams of mushrooms, right? You know, I would not be able to point my face in the direction of the microphone or sit upright. There is a big difference in what one might mean by surrender or self-transcendence, depending on whether one is talking about changes in the contents of consciousness or just recognizing what any mode of consciousness is, is already like. We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? My name is Henry, and I've been a supporter of the Labyrinths podcast for some time. I can totally relate to the concept of feeling lost, and I think the stories have helped me tremendously getting through these last couple of years, and I think they would help others as well. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. It's like your mind is being extruded across a landscape and conformed to it and squeezed and evaporated. And to say that one's mind has simply been shot out among the stars is somehow to trivialize the experience. Again, it's not merely a matter of seeing in a vast space. It's a matter of feeling to a degree that defies description. I mean, I can dimly remember feeling such intense gratitude that I wouldn't expect to feel any other emotion for the rest of my life. 
Again, I have to admit the poverty of words here. Okay, we have a word for love, for instance. But what's the word for all the love you can possibly feel? That's from the Waking Up app, where Sam posted a description of his most recent psychedelic experience, having consumed five dried grams of psilocybin mushrooms while wearing a blindfold. His description is eloquent, but not, in essence, unique. I'm curious, why do you think it is that love and gratitude end up being common reported experiences people have when they take something like mushrooms? Why does that fill the void, say, or why is that present when the ego drops away? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think the ego, it is illusory, but it has all of these ramifications that are synonymous with fear and resistance and an avoidance of relationship to others. The quintessential pro-social emotions like love and gratitude and generosity and all these modes in which we seem to overflow the boundaries of ourselves and take the interests of others as our own, right? The ego is the boundary that we're trespassing again and again there. And if you just destroy that boundary utterly, all of this positivity seems to be what's left right now. It's not to say that there aren't ways to experience something negative and have part of that experience be that the conventional boundaries have been disrupted, right? And we should say as a, as a caveat and a warning here that for all the good experiences you can have on psychedelics, there, there are probably an equal number of bad ones. You can experience limitless joy and love and connection and gratitude, and you can also experience limitless or seemingly limitless terror and shame and disconnection. And so I mean, comparisons to heaven and hell seem appropriate to me. But when things are really going well on an intense trip, it just feels like this is closer to the mm. truth about us. Mm. And it's not really an experience you need to argue for. The way you can kind of back into an, an argument for it is that, and this comes more from the, the mindfulness side than from the, the psychedelic side, but you just look at these states of mind, feelings of anger or hatred or fear, and then you, you look at how they're constructed and... Mm. When you cease to construct them, they fall away and you look at what's left. What's left is a space in which positive emotions like joy and love and compassion readily appear, right? There does seem to be an asymmetry here that is a very happy one. When you clear out all of your entanglement with concepts and you're, you're no longer distracted by thought, if you're going to be identified with the next thought that appears, well, then you are condemned to feel whatever the implications of that thought are. Now, and this actually, this does relate to psychedelics because so much of the difference between a good and bad experience on psychedelics can be a matter of being captured by good and bad thoughts, right? Captured here with, a, with an energy and intensity that are unrecognizable, right? And are fairly crazy-making. This is what it's like to be insane when you're this identified and moved around by thought and your thoughts are unhappy ones, mm -hmm. right? And that's where you can experience not just ordinary shame hmm. or fear, but just a limitless shame and fear and seemingly forever, right? Your sense of time gets distorted. You can even lose the sense that you have ever been in any other condition than the one you're in now, right? So they, there can be a, a sense of an, an eternal 
damnation to these states. And conversely, the good experiences can also seem eternal, right? And then when you start to come down, you you are somewhat mystified as to, wait a minute, this is not the universe I've always been in. <laughs> the capture by thought is the machine that produces the 10,000 beautiful and horrible things. And there really does seem to be an asymmetry when you when you break that spell and you can just rest in open awareness, regardless of what the prior contents of consciousness have been. I mean, it doesn't matter who you were a moment ago. If you can just get to a true break in the clouds, there does seem to be an asymmetry where what now comes through is, at worst, it's benign, right? I'm not saying you, you don't necessarily acquire the most upbeat personality <laughs> you know, you, you've ever seen. I think the thing you can truly expect is something like tranquility and peace and ease of being. Hmm. And, you know, whether that takes the form of being incredibly joyful, that I do think is probably more a matter of personality. But it really is just the distinction between, between suffering and the end of suffering. Hmm. So this is true in ordinary consciousness, and it's, it's true hmm. in the middle of an acid trip where you, you, you could be experiencing something super intense and unpleasant or super intense and pleasant. If you drop all resistance and all, you know, all resistance in the case of the unpleasant and all grasping in the case of the pleasant and just recognize that consciousness is the open space in which all of these fireworks are appearing, that insight does tend to equalize everything. And you can, you can have experiences where you don't even know whether what you're experiencing is agony or ecstasy, hmm. right? There's no place from which to distinguish them. You, you, you know it's super intense. The volume is turned up to 11, but you know there's no place from which you're forming a judgment as to whether or not this is, this is good or this is bad. Hmm. Yeah. Could it be the case that perception and experience are inherently pleasurable or joyous, but that suffering sort of requires desire and judgment? And then when the self drops away, the ability to judge others and, and the self is sort of gone. The reaching after of something is gone. And so what's left is experience unadulterated by judgment. Yeah, I, well, I think what we tend to experience here is that our default state of resisting what's unpleasant and grasping at what's pleasant and seeking to improve things in every moment, all the work we're doing there tends to go unnoticed. It is how we spend more or less every waking moment. And when that relaxes, there just can be an extraordinary sense of relief. There's a default positivity to just giving up the war with experience. Mm. And then very positive experiences kind of flow into that space, and you don't need to grasp at them, right? I mean, then, then the grasping at them is a kind of diminishment of, you know, it's, it's, it's the same old program. I mean, this is something that people run into in meditation practice, and certainly when they begin to repeatedly take psychedelics, this desire to get back to some sort of peak experience, hmm. that, that does become a corruption of the whole enterprise. You're not seeing how right. that's just the same program that made you who you were before you had any of these peak experiences. It's just a more rarefied version hmm. of seeking to become happy. We can't help but notice that many of the most vocal critics of the psychedelic renaissance at the moment are people who, by their own admission, have taken a lot of psychedelics across the gamut of substances. 
whereas someone like Sam Harris went 25 years between psychedelic experiences. And yet, Sam is a big proponent of psychedelic therapy. As he said on Waking Up, I really am looking forward to a time when psychedelic therapy is a legal, established clinical science. This really must happen. We need a modern, rational, ethically responsible way of reinstantiating the mysteries of elusis. We need to understand the furthest reaches of human well-being, and many of us need to experience these states of mind directly so that we can create an ethics and a politics and a culture generally that has its priorities straight. But experiencing them directly isn't the same as experiencing them repeatedly or developing a dependency on peak experience. The insight that really has to land eventually is that it can't be a matter of freedom, can't be a matter of securing some experience, because all experiences are temporary. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't there a moment ago, eventually it's going to pass away. And that's true however you got there, right? especially in the case of taking a drug. But it's, it's true based on meditation practice. And so, so in the beginning, I mean, people find meditation very difficult. They find it hard to do, and it can take some time to differentiate successfully paying attention to any object of meditation and, and being lost in thought. But once they truly get started and they can meditate, then they begin to feel that, well, first of all, apparently good things begin to happen. They feel calm. They feel they might even feel blissful. They, they might have experiences where their thoughts seem to subside and they have a, an experience of mind being much more expansive than they expected. And so it all becomes very drug-like mm-hmm. uh, eventually. And then they begin to associate successful meditation with those changes in state. Mm. Like, okay, now it's working. All right, this is why I meditate. The feeling of the, you know, the, the needle hitting your vein and you're now basically using invisible heroin it can be that intense and it can be th- it can be that trivial, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it is just a temporary change in physiology that in and of itself doesn't mean anything, mm-hmm. right? It's just because it will pass away. You'll uncross your legs and go back into your life and find yourself frustrated by something or you'll read something on Twitter that horrifies you or you will crash land back into your former way of being and it's great to have that experience as a kind of reference point for what's possible, you know, yeah. as it is with psychedelics. But ultimately, the thing we have to discover is the freedom that is intrinsic to consciousness itself that is available no matter what you feel yeah. like, yeah. no matter what was here a moment mm-hmm. ago. And you can only really begin to locate that when you cease to be confused about this dichotomy of seeking to become happy versus being happy. This is the apparent paradox that we need to solve in each of us, and and no one can solve it for you, but you have to recognize that you can't actually become happy. You can only be happy. Mm -hmm. And any effort to reach past the present moment into some improvement is to be taken in by a mirage. Hmm. In ordinary ways, life can get better and worse. That's obviously true. So yeah, you know, if you're sick, you should go to a doctor. If you're broke, you should figure out how to make money. I mean, like, all of that stuff matters in their own way. And if your life is chaotic enough, you don't have time to think about any of these things, right? You just have one problem after another to solve. Right. But it is in fact true that no matter how good things ever get, there's this mirage-like quality to 
a sense of mm. arriving at the thing you were hoping to be gratified by, the satisfaction of a desire, the meeting of a goal. All of these things evaporate into the next moment in which you were actually unfulfilled. So there's something to recognize here about the nature of the deepest possibility of human well-being. And it, it is in ultimately finding a, a kind of tranquility that is compatible with any contents of consciousness. I know that we're supposed to be talking about psychedelics and everything, um, <laughs> but I can't help but feel like a lot of what you're talking about, and maybe in part because I have yet to have a psychedelic experience, but a lot of what you're talking about is very much resonating with me. Like even just what you said about like giving up the internal war that you have with your own experiences. And I'm thinking of what it felt like to get the guilty verdict and having my entire understanding of how the world works and how my life was like just collapse underneath me in an instant hmm. and this sort of plunging into a peak experience of grief that at the same time was partnered with a kind of disassociated relief in the sense that a part of me was very much above myself and acting as a witness of myself in a broader way than just like the me that was suffering in the moment. Mm. And I was no longer thinking about the past and the future. I was deeply, deeply present because it was such an overwhelming realization about the world. Yeah. And the integration experience, I, I think like when we're thinking about any state of mind is a state of mind that is conducive to having a clear sense of self. It doesn't have to be peak experiences. But in your own experience of having tried psychedelics, they've opened up an avenue of curiosity for you to appreciate the common experience that isn't a peak experience, similar with me and getting a wrongful conviction verdict. What about the integration aspect, though, and the regular practice of mindfulness, not just in relation to everyday experience, but also to psychedelic experiences and even traumatic ones. How do you see all of that working, integrating into a sense of well-being? And do you understand what I'm trying yeah, to ask? I think, <laughs> like, I think maybe the question is, if psychedelics can potentially be an avenue towards this profound sense of well-being, and they certainly can function not to be that if people don't use them appropriately, right? If they can help in this avenue, what role does mindfulness have to play in ensuring that or making it more likely? I know you mentioned at some point you were interested in the possibility of, say, combining a silent retreat center with the idea of a high-dose of mushrooms or psilocybin, something like that. Mm -hmm. Do these yeah. two things, can they help each other out in some way? Yeah, well, they're super supportive of one another if approached correctly. And there, there has been some research on this. There, there was one retreat study done where I think it was a five-day retreat where on the third day, I believe, people were given a, a significant dose of psilocybin. And it was, as would surprise absolutely no one, it was an incredible experience for people. It made the psychedelic component especially effective and it brought home the power of mindfulness practice. 
in a way that can be discovered in one's first five-day retreat, but I can imagine psychedelics would make that an incredibly powerful introduction to meditation. So how did Sam's own mindfulness practice impact his experience during his five-gram blindfolded trip? Now, I definitely think my experience in meditation helped me here, and I was conscious at many points of surrendering to the experience by cutting through the sense of self, which is to say subject-object dualism. But there were also vast stretches of time where there was simply no recollection that mindfulness was an option. Another analogy comes to mind here. Mindfulness seems to me like the discovery of fire, right? You can kindle it yourself, laboriously at first, but eventually you can produce it on demand, and it warms you, and you can put it to many useful purposes. And it really is fire, right? It's the real thing, as much as any other fire in the universe. But five grams of mushrooms is like being hurled into the sun. You can't use this experience at all, but it's there. That is, you can't use it while it's happening. But afterwards? Sure, that experience creates new possibilities and perspectives for mindfulness to operate on. But even that is no guarantee of lasting positive transformation, however filled with love and awe you might feel at the peak of such an experience. In terms of the question of securing some hold on positive growth and, and growth toward well-being you know, of a sort that most people never get to experience or, or can't experience for long, it's important to acknowledge that mindfulness or any meditation and psychedelics can't be enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really are not the whole program. You can see how this must be the case because to take the, the psychedelic piece, any illusion that there's a direct connection between frequent use of psychedelics and a mode of living that we would find ethically recognizable, much less desirable, hmm. that goes out the window when you recall that the Aztecs were both enthusiastic users of psychedelics and enthusiastic practitioners of human sacrifice. <laughs> you can spend your time fairly stoned and still think you want to rip people's hearts out and play soccer with their skulls. You can have a completely deranged culture getting potentiated by your psychedelically infused religion. And so it is with meditation. I mean, there are great teachers of meditation who are not frauds, right, who are real meditators, who had legitimate insights into the nature of consciousness, who were unethical assholes, Hmm. right, who treated their students terribly Hmm. and and created tremendous harm. There's no question of that. You know, so so you take someone like Osho, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, If you didn't see the docuseries Wild Wild Country, Osho, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, was an Indian mystic and cult leader who created a commune in Oregon in the 1980s, where, aside from speaking his wisdom daily to his acolytes, he enriched himself from his followers, amassing a collection of 93 Rolls Royces. He was also linked to various crimes, including charges of murder and bioterrorism for an attempt to poison the local town with salmonella. Despite all this... You know, he was not a fraud. Obviously, I can't read his mind, but there's just there's every sign that he had real experience, and he certainly was very smart. And 
his career is a cautionary tale. And there's a long list of gurus who I could say that about. Now, there, there have been people who I would consider to be frauds too, but, hmm. but those are not the interesting cases. So you need an intelligent examination of ethics running alongside your adventures in self-transcendence, hmm. whether they're mindfully induced or, or psychedelically. So, I mean, even just a simple commitment to not lying Right. I mean, that's such an enormously clarifying thing to add to one's life. And it closes the door to 90% of consequential bad behavior. When you just look at how people's lives unravel, how their reputations get destroyed, how their relationships fall apart, so much of that is a story of, of lying with apparent impunity until the bill comes due. And that's something that's more than just a matter of meditating more or better. Mm -hmm. And it's more than taking the right drugs. It is a strand of applied philosophy that there's nothing, there's no surrogate for it. Many of the changes that will secure a better world for us can't happen at the individual level. We need institutions that actually work and we need laws that incentivize the right things. And we need to design a world where it becomes easier and easier to be a good person. Perhaps the current controversies roiling the psychedelic therapy community only seem so damaging to the entire psychedelic project because of an unfair expectation put on these substances. But when you recognize that psilocybin and LSD are not panaceas for mental health issues, and that ego loss through a high-dose psychedelic trip doesn't automatically convert one into a good person, then abuse seems less an endemic feature of these powerful drugs and the communities that form around them, and more a result of what causes abuse in any realm, a lack of applied ethics. There's another larger kind of ethics at play, too. Our relationship to the planet to all life on Earth. Next time, in part six of our miniseries, mycologist Paul Stamets takes us through the wide world of fungi, our mutual evolution, and gives us a mycelium's eye view of our place in the universe. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. Now close your eyes, focus on your breath, and picture a five-star review. <laughs> This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. In the Labyrinth's podcast system, the listener is serenaded by two separate but equally important hosts, Amanda Knox, who brings authenticity and empathy, and Christopher Robinson, who brings intellectual curiosity. These are their stories. What do you think, Knox? Looks like a podcast junkie shot up with one too many ads. Should have become a patron from the looks of it. Who wouldn't prefer ad-free episodes and signed books and live video hangouts over overdosing on ads in an alleyway? Don't patronize me, Knox. Leave that to the listener. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.